0: Welcome to another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity, the Leadership Series. Today, we have Andy Ellis, who will be sharing his experiences in cybersecurity with us. Andy, why did you decide to become a cybersecurity leader versus an individual contributor?
1: I think it comes down to having both more leverage and more control. I started out as an individual contributor, became the principal individual contributor, And I looked around and said, I had a lot of choices, like I could do things and I could either take on leadership of the organization or let somebody else do that, let them go find somebody to do it. But if somebody was really my direct manager, because I was very independent at the time, I would lose a lot of that self-control, being able to choose what I did. And also I liked the leverage of being able to see the bigger picture and try to put people into places to succeed where I could get more done through the people who worked for me than I could potentially do myself.
0: And this topic is going to be very natural for you, considering that you're writing a book on cybersecurity leadership. What would you consider the critical skills of a cybersecurity leader?
1: So I think that there is a whole host of skills. And in April, when my book comes out, I know that's a long way away. People can read like about 54 different skills that that I talk through. But at a high level, it comes down to technical skills, people skills, and process skills. And technical skills you should think of as... The ways that you directly change the world through your own act. So sometimes that is writing code or breaking software. Sometimes it is writing English prose. A lot of times it's like, how can you help your company market what they do? There's a skill in there of communicating and writing things down. So you want to have a foundational technical excellence that you can solve problems yourself. The second category is the people skills, which I think of as the ability to change the world through people you directly interact with. Can you identify when somebody is ready for an opportunity? Do you know how to set them up for success while still enticing them with the risk of failure? And that sounds interesting, like enticing them. People want that rush. They want to know... That they're learning something new and your job is to give them that feeling but with safeties around them so that they can learn through that stressful moment but it's not being so stressful that they feel that they're abandoned out there but it's putting people in places to succeed and taking them away from places where success is impossible there's a lot of work we do in security and in frankly all across the business where if you stopped doing it it wouldn't really matter and if you delegate that work to somebody else you're hurting them you're not going to change the world in a positive way through them in fact you're going to break their ability to change the world in the future the most important set of skills all lump under what i call process changing the world through people you don't directly interact with can you set up processes and understand how people will violate process and by violate i don't mean ignore it i actually mean actively harm it let's take a process around vulnerability management for instance a lot of people want to move to slas i'm a big fan of it you should do sla management and say oh we have a seven day sla what percentage of the time do we succeed at seven day patch management but if you have an exception process which you should because some vulnerabilities are like serious architectural flaws it's going to take months to fix maybe a year to roll out into your customer base that sounds really scary to a lot of people, but I've dealt with vulnerabilities that were multi-year critical issues. So you're going to, you're going to give an exception and say, look, we're not going to really penalize you badly for this one violating seven. But what people will start to do is they'll show up on day six and a half and say, oh, we can't fix this by the seven day window because it's gonna take us like three days to do this, even if we stopped everything else and dumped all of our feature releases. So we're just gonna defer it for 30 days. And, and they say, but look, it's six and a half days in, so there's no way we could hit seven days anyway, so you need to give us an exception. And what I found is that if you took that and said, what if we had known that four days? What if at day two and a half, we had said, had made that trade-off, would we have said, we're going to not do it for 30 days, or would we have actually, in the heat of the crisis, decided to actually implement it? And you've taken that choice out and people are violating the process because they didn't want to. They made the choice at a lower level than the company should have allowed. It should have been made at a VP of engineering rather than a manager of engineering level. So understanding the way people will actively violate process, you manipulate it. What are the negative incentives that you put into a process? People often like to say that you can expect what you inspect, which is whatever you look for, you're going to get more of. It's the old Dilbert. If you incentivize people for fixing bugs, they will write more bugs. And so a lot of process skills really orient around understanding how humans defeat your process. And as a security professional, at the very least, you have a leg up because odds are your technical skills are all oriented or around defeating other people's processes. So just apply them to
0: yourself. Should you think about that, how would you rate yourself from delegation in regards to delegation on a scale of one to five and why?
1: Yeah. So it's funny because when you wrote this question, you asked about my personal comfort with it. And I think I gave the answer that my comfort doesn't matter. Like delegation is really hard, but it is the most important skill. You need this, you need to be a five at delegation if you want to be a leader, because it is the only way to continue to. And the reason a lot of people don't want to delegate is because there's this feeling of, you don't want to necessarily say, power, maybe self-actualization when everybody has to come to you, but you don't want to be irreplaceable. What you want to be is unclonable. Nobody should ever be able to truly fill your shoes, but they shouldn't be able to get the jobs done. And the way that you do that is through delegation. You find work that would be fitting for someone else and let them do it. And what you have to do is figure out how do you keep people from escalating past, them. especially in security, where a job is often to say, hey, that's a dangerous thing. Maybe you shouldn't do it. And people don't like hearing that answer. So they escalate. I can always get a better deal if I go to the top. And after a while, we learned that it was actually better to do the opposite. I had to deal with the people who worked for me that I had delegated responsibility to them was they could tell me what deal I should accept. And they would always offer a more generous. So it's, oh, hey, look, if you can get this done collegially and under the covers, we don't have to officially take notice of this problem, then you can get away with a lot more. Oh, you found your own bugs? Great, there's no SLA on patching a bug that is self-discovered. Sounds really wacky, doesn't it? But if all of a sudden they're like, Ooh, there's no SLA, but this one is really bad. Like you need to get this into your next feature release. And they would tell me and they'd say, Hey, if this one comes to you, like you need to disrupt their next release. Like this doesn't go into the one that is not yet feature frozen. You need to open up the one that's code frozen. If they say they don't want to go to the feature frozen one. So anytime that they had discretion, they would err on the side of generosity. And I would err on the side of caution, which all of a sudden empowers them because nobody wanted to escalate past. Because the more you escalated, the worse your problem became. Because if it was such a big issue that you had to get the CISO's attention, then clearly we needed to fix it urgently.
0: And on the opposite end of delegation, collaboration. Yeah. How would you rate your comfort level with collaboration and why?
1: Oh, I love collaboration. I'm much more comfortable with collaboration. I hate confrontation. And there's probably a lot of former colleagues who are like, Andy, you'd love conference. And the answer is no, no. If you make me have a confrontation, I will enjoy going into that confrontation and I'm going to do my best in that moment, but I would rather not ever have a confrontation. How do I head those off in a collaborative fashion? One of the big challenges you often have as a CISO is helping people prioritize the most important risks to the business. And there are people who want you to give them a strictly ordered list. This is risk number one it is always worse than risk number 2 which is always worse than risk number 3 and at a high level when you have really bad risks that is often the case there is a disaster you've just got to fix right now nothing is more important than that disaster but once you clean things up and hit the steady state you have a bunch of really bad risks that are not easy to fix because if they were easy to fix you would have solved them already but they're so they're there but they're not disasters and you have like maybe 10 to 50 of these that you're just keeping track of. And you wanna make progress, so you can't make progress on 50 at once. So you go to someone, you say, hey, look, here's like the four that are relevant to your organization, pick one. And they look at you and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I would be happy with you fixing any of these. But I, this, is, this is the one that I think might be slightly worse and slightly easier to fix better than i do what's easier to fix and your system's better than i do maybe a different one is slightly worth. pick one and the reason that i like that collaborative approach and it sounds like it's not totally collaborative i was putting them on the spot but what it's really doing is it's making them commit to the most important now it's not the CISO said i have to fix this it's I said, I have to fix this. I am part of the decision-making process. And the reason that's important is a lot of decisions that we make are hard decisions. There is no right choice. People love simple choices where there's an obvious solution that is strictly better than every other thing. If all decisions were made that way, we would not need C-level executives. Maybe we don't need C-level executives anyway but we certainly don't need people making hard decisions if decisions are easy. But when one person makes a hard decision for a group, most of the group will not actually be bought into the decision. So what you do by avoiding collaboration early is you create confrontation later. People will snipe at you. They'll drag their heels. They're gonna continue to argue with you and point out the flaws. If instead you let them join you on that journey of choice that they get to navigate and see that there are no good options, then they all get bought on. I used to reorg my team a lot. And that sounds scary because people were like, oh my God, why are we reorging? And the answer wasn't that we were doing like big reorgs. It was like little tactical things. Hey, this became a priority. We want to put people on it, but that means they have to stop doing their other work. Like for me, it was actually this admission of there's work we need to stop doing. So we have to move somebody on an org chart. And really they work for the same person, but they're technically like doing something different now so that we could tell people you're not allowed to ask them for their old work. And at one point we had to do a pretty significant one. We needed to move like 10% of our people onto a new project and eliminate whatever they were doing with no new incremental headcount. And we were already, I thought, running pretty lean. So everybody was going to be unhappy. So we put it in front of all the managers in the organization. We said, here's our constraints. Here's the group we want to build. Here's a sort of the people that we probably think ought to go into that group. How do we reorg the team around this new and deal with the constraints? And so we sent off managers in pairs. Okay. Hey, this pair go out and try to solve the problem and all of you come back. And they were all really frustrated because they couldn't come up with a that they liked. And the answer was there was never going to be a solution anybody liked. So at the end of the day, like I and my senior leaders, we basically just made a decision, sat down, spent three hours, like drew the lines, figured out who was that where. But what was amazing was it was the least amount of pushback from the line managers in the organization because all of them had seen how hard the problem was.
0: That is a very tough decision to do. As you think about sharing those decisions, you, what's your comfort level with communication on a whole? And so I am a huge fan of
1: communication and I've said, I'm like a huge fan of everything you've asked me for here, but you're nailing the really important leadership skills, you're going to make a decision and it's important to be transparent and so communication, I think of it as it goes three ways, not two ways. So it's direct from you to your, it's direct from your team to you, but it's also indirect from your team to you. There are hard questions that people do not feel comfortable asking because there is no true safe space. Like you are the leader who can fire them and they will never get over that. There's things, jokes you can't make because of it. It took me a long time to learn that one. We had a direct report that I had laid off and then hired, and he could make jokes about being laid off by me. But anytime I made a joke about it, boom, the room would shut down because like I could always do it again. And so look, I'm still friends with him. But now I can make those jokes because he doesn't actually work for me anymore. So you have to recognize that you need to advertise and communicate. Hey, here's what we're doing. Here's what's going on. You need to give people an opportunity to ask you hard questions. And then you need to give them a way to ask hard questions without attribution. So every time I would do an all hands, which was once a quarter, or whenever we had some significant event, we had an anonymous form for asking questions and upvoting questions. And if you wanted to put your name on it, you could, and then you got to ask your question. And if you didn't want to put your name on it, that was okay. One of the folks in my chief of staff office would ask the question for you and you would get an answer. And then if we didn't get a chance to answer all of the questions, we would try really hard in our team chat to type out answers for everybody and say, Sorry, we didn't get to it, but here's the answer to this question. Now, sometimes look, you get questions that are not asked in good faith, but you, you have to treat them like they are and answer them. And it's easy to say, oh my God, it's the same person who's asking this question because they've got an ax to grind. It's yep, but that's okay. Because maybe it's asked by somebody different this time or whatever it is, but you have to be communicative and help explain what went on so that they can see and learn. Like, they don't understand the decisions you make because they don't see the world you're in. And communication is your opportunity as a leader to expose people gently to the wider world of the organization so that they can understand the constraints that you're operating under.
0: How would you rate influence as a leadership skill and why? So I
1: think that influence is one of the most underrated skills. It is most important for staff functions, which security usually is. There's a lot of security... folks who like to think that they get to tell the business things. I think my favorite answer is like, how many people can you actually fire? And the answer is a security team is basically your own team. Like you don't get to fire anybody. So everything that you do is through influence. Nobody does work unless they want to do work and your job is to make them want to do. Now you could do that by going up over their heads, over escalating and using their management stick to push down on you or onto them. But the challenge is they will never do things voluntarily for you. They will make you burn political capital going to their management every single time once you've abused that, and then their management is going to push back on you because there's a lot that you need to get done that is not that important. That's the most important thing I think for anybody to walk away with insecurity. 99% of the things that we get done should never be talked about in front of executives. Like you find a bug in software that's literally like a one-line code change. A VP should never hear about that unless it's already in the news. Go talk to a person, file a change request, your know, pull request, and say, Hey, here's the change you need to make. Let them deal with it. And that requires influence that you can walk up and say, Hey, could you do this for me? And they'll say, and so it's goal that you focus on your influence skills. And the most important way to do that, I think is by learning what hurts people. What are their pain points? And you can just ask them. If you go ask developers and say, hey, what's your biggest pain point? That's a hard question to phrase. So you might want to take them out for a beer or whatever the Zoom equivalent is and be like, Yo, hey, I want to understand your job a little bit more. What makes it difficult? And they'll probably say, to be clear, say, let's talk about not me for a moment. But if you learn the things that hurt them, then you can learn how to attack those things before they bring them up. I used to have a peer who worked in our professional services organization. And a lot of the ways that we would fix problems in our production network involved making changes to every customer config. Because that was the easiest thing for engineering. Like they would just say, oh, we'll just implement a new feature that is more secure than the old feature. And you'll go manually migrate everybody. And the first time they did, it, I'm like, hey, whatever, like that's how you want to fix the problem. Great. My professional services peer would hate every one of those. They're really expensive too. And so all of a sudden I started channeling professional services concerns. So when someone would say, hey, let's just fix it this way, I'd be like, whoa, what does migration look like? How much is this gonna cost us? How easy is this for customers? And now all of a sudden I have more influence into professional services because they can see that I understand their pain. So when I would say, hey, this is the best we're going to get, they would under- believe that I had actually investigated and wasn't just believing that because engineering told me.
0: Now, taking a step away from technology, how would you rate networking as a skill for a leader and why? So
1: networking, I think, is a really overrated skill. But at the same time, it is important. But I think that people think of networking as asking other people for to, to do stuff. And networking is just Helping people because you, and then one day you get to call that in and reach out to somebody, but you should recognize it in a sense, you're paying it forward in advance. Like you say, oh, hey, look, Christoph's doing this cool cybersecurity series. I'm going to do it because I just want to help Christoph out. Like now it'll probably be because I have a book on leadership. When that book comes, like it helps. Hey, Christoph's now in my network. He's somebody that I've helped a bunch of times. And when I say, hey, can I come on your podcast and advertise my book? Like networking has helped, but I'm not showing up here today because of that thing in April when the book drops, although I guess I just advertised it there. I'm doing this just because I can, because it's helpful. There's people I'm reaching out to. And so that's really what networking is giving to people to build your network, not trying to figure out who can help you and trying to suck them into your network. I run into that a lot of people on LinkedIn send you that invite and says, Hey, I want you in my network. I'm like, so? Like you're a random person, like the network doesn't grow just because we create links. It grows because we do things for people. And so that's what I think is important. And don't networking up is okay, but it's hard. It's expensive. What are you going to do for somebody more senior than you in the industry? Probably not a lot, but if you do things laterally to people who are more junior in the industry, like there's a lot of power you have to make people's lives better. So every time you can do that, take advantage of it, but don't, think that networking is this thing you rely on it's just hey you're building these connections and there will be a day it's fantastic like i have my own podcast and i use my network to get guests it's all people who i've done stuff for with we've done stuff to get over a decade and when i first was interacting with these people they weren't like the CISOs of all the social media giants now they are so my social media team is like how do you get these people and so 10 years ago, I brought a beer on stage to this person. Cause he made a joke about needing a beer. Cause it was the last talk of the, like literally I did that as a conference with Roland Cloutier, who's net, who at the time was with ADP. Now he's with TikTok. And, but that was the thing that made me memorable to Roland at the, was like, he made a joke. He was on stage with Bob Bragdon. And then they're like, for the five o'clock fireside chat, we should have a beer. And so I walked to the beer, to the bar at the hotel, got three beers. Cause I wasn't gonna not drink. Handed them each one, went back to my seat, and like, we now had this thing. And look at how little that was. It cost me like 15 bucks because, you know, it's hotel prices for
0: beers. Wow, that's a memorable story. I will always remember that. Now, thinking about a future leader who might be listening to this, what advice would you give them? So I would just
1: start by saying you are not a future leader. You are a leader today. I think people wait to have official power to think of their leadership journey. But the reality is when you show up to work, everybody who sees you is being led by you. Are you leading them to be a better version of themselves or a worse version of themselves? If they see you slacking off, they're like, hey, I can totally slack off. Now, if they see you taking care of yourself, they're like, ooh, that's awesome. I should be taking care of myself. So you get to lead every day. Recognize that some of the leadership things do require official power. Like I'm a firm believer that wellness is important and people should take lots of time off to take care of themselves. We used to have a policy when I was at Akamai that anybody in the team could send anybody else home. You could just be like, Christoph, you're, you look like you're having a bad day. Go home. You'd be like, but I got five meetings this afternoon. Are you actually going to have positive outcomes of your meetings? No, go. But that required me as the head of the function saying, this is our policy. Trust your neighbor. If they tell you, you need to take care of yourself and we will always cover you for an absence. Don't worry about it. So that took me doing it, but then it empowered everybody to exercise their own leadership and take care of the people around them. So recognize that you're not a future leader. You are a leader today. And what are you doing this skills that will be useful? 20 years from now, but that are also helpful and useful and effective today.
0: Oh, and Nick, thank you so much for sharing advice, stories, and everything with us today. We truly appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Christoph. I appreciate it.